Welcome to the e-commerce growth show brought to you by Segmentify. Carlos again for another e-commerce growth show brought by uh, Segmentify. Today we have Jason Goldberg. So Scott will be uh, introducing Jason. Jason, thanks very much once again. Uh, it's really nice to have you here. Uh, Scott, please. All right. Thank you, Carlos. And hello, everyone. Scott Emmons uh, here for another episode of the e-commerce growth show USA. Uh, and we are excited to have Jason Goldberg, otherwise known as the Retail Geek, as our guest today. Uh, uh, if I you know, look at uh, uh, Jason's uh, uh, resume, uh, uh, which currently is Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publicis uh, Communications, uh, he uh, claims to be a fourth generation retailer. He launched his first e-commerce site with Blockbuster Video in 1995. I was teaching Unix system administration uh, at that time was, was my role, something very different <laughs> than what I do. Uh, uh, nice. We, we could talk Emacs versus VI later, maybe. Exactly. You know, I was a VI wizard, man. Uh, and you know what? Uh, once you once you have that, it never goes away, it turns out. I'll bet uh, your fingers still know the shortcuts. So yeah. You know, as a, as a Mac user, that stuff comes in pretty handy when you need to get down under the hood of the thing, to be honest. So uh, uh, it's it still serves me from time to time. Uh, continuing on, uh, you know, because your, your bio is another one of those that could be the entire show, uh, just the reading of it. Uh, Let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, which we won't. But, you know, interesting kind of highlights, right? You know, uh, sat on the, it sits on the board of directors of shop.org. Which uh, I, I, you know, it's not really shop.org is not really a thing now, right? It's uh, NRF uh, Next NXT, I think. Uh, so I assume you're still involved there. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. The uh, shop.org got bought by the National Retail Federation maybe five years ago. So today, the the organization that was shop.org is now sort of the the digital council uh, component of the National Retail Federation. Yeah, it'd be interesting maybe later in the show to chat about that sort of transition because that was a you know a big player during its time and you know uh, and and has certainly uh, pivoted uh, uh, over the over the years as as the whole retail scene has has changed before our eyes. Uh, also, uh, uh, Jason's a prolific producer of content, uh, you know, including a YouTube channel and a very well uh, attended podcast, The Jason and Scott Show, uh, though his Scott only has one T, uh, unlike me, who is, is two Ts. I'm the full Scott as opposed to the one T Scott. Uh, 100%. The, uh, I like to say Scott's parents were, were good at SEO, but they spelled his name wrong. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the Jason and Scott Show, there, there are a lot of, uh, of content there and a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, 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 on that, you know, I was, I was thinking, I think this is like our eighth episode that me and Carlos have recorded, you know, where I was like, man, we're, we're doing pretty good, you know, eight, eight hours of content or so. Uh, and then I look at, you know, I, you know, I come across your stuff and I'm doing research on you and it's like 300 plus hours of, uh, online content. <laughs> like, wow. We're, you know, we're not even out of the womb yet. Um, uh, uh, in terms of, you also, uh, I have a lot of interesting stuff on Forbes, uh, which I sort of browse through. Uh, I've seen previously, but also did some, you know, uh, 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 browsing to prepare uh, for our talk today and, and, and a lot of really good stuff there uh, as well. So welcome uh, uh, and thank you again for joining us today. 
Oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And especially, you know, uh, taking the time out on National Limerick Day. So uh, we appreciate that. Uh, and it also turns out it's National Odometer Day, uh, which is weird, I think, that that has a day. Uh, and, uh, you know, probably the most important is it's National Receptionist Day, which, uh, you know, that's actually something that's actionable for some of you out there. Uh, and I bet, you know, being a receptionist. Or oh, it should be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's probably been a pretty tough gig over the last year or so uh, as well. So uh, uh, congrats to all the uh, receptionists that might be joining us uh, uh, today. So, uh, you know, let's, we, we can start out talking about your career a little bit, you know, since it, you, that you have really done a lot of things. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you are, you know, I think recognized, you know, as a top influencer when, you know, the conversation uh, is about retail and e-commerce. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the journey, you know, of, you know, getting from, uh, uh, you know, blockbuster e-com to, you know, where you sit today. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the joke is I keep I keep trying stuff until I find something I'm good at. So hopefully it, it will happen soon. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, as you you mentioned in your kind introduction, uh, my my family's been in retail uh, a long time. Uh, in the '90s, uh, which I recognize is before most of uh, our our viewers were alive, um, the my uncles had started this interesting business, uh, video rental stores. Uh, I know that sounds sounds wacky, um, but they, they uh, built up a couple of successful stores and they sold the stores to an entrepreneur that uh, was based here in the United States in Florida um, named Wayne Heisinger. And uh, the joke was that I was included in that transaction. So my family sold me into indentured servitude to, to uh, who I now affectionately think of as Uncle Wayne. Um, although he, he's passed away, uh, and some listeners may be familiar, uh, Wayne is, was the founder uh, uh, or the grower of, of Blockbuster Video. Um, so uh, those those stores uh, were part of the early fleet. Um, today, I work for a big digital agency, and Blockbuster is a huge joke. It's the first slide in every deck that anyone does, and it's like, don't let this happen to you. Um, and I'm always the knucklehead in the back of the room that has to yell. Yeah, we sold the company for $15 billion and got out. It wasn't really a bad exit. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, back then, e-commerce wasn't a thing. The internet wasn't really even a thing yet. Uh, I mean, the, the browser was Mosaic. Mark Andreessen hadn't even written Netscape yet. Um, and uh, we, we had a meeting at Blockbuster. Should we have a website? Should we try to sell anything on it? And uh, back then, I was the equivalent of the intern that was the only guy in the company that had a computer at home. Um, and so I got assigned to sort of figure that out. That eventually turned into launching a website, eventually turned into launching e-commerce uh, a year before Amazon launched, in fact. Um, and then uh, uh, all ran pretty well when we, uh, we, we invented some good campaigns, make it a blockbuster night, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, and when we sold the business, uh, some some more traditional retailers, Best Buy and Target called and said, hey, we're trying to figure out this e-commerce thing. And it seems like you guys have some early experience at Blockbuster. Can you help us? So uh, ended up getting to work with some really smart teams in Minneapolis. And that that kind of bridged the way to me becoming a, a full time consultant. And uh, today I do it for a, a, a giant advertising holding company. 
Amazing, mm -hmm. amazing. It's funny you mentioned Mosaic. You know, I'd, I'd said earlier in the introduction I was doing Unix stuff, you know, back in 95. And in fact, I was doing it for a company called the Santa Cruz Operation that had a, a, a you know, one of the very early internet enabled platforms. Uh, and I actually, I was there, CNN actually came and filmed us uh, as we ordered the first pizza from Pizza Hut, you know, off of their, you know, brand new commerce site using Mosaic. Uh, <laughs> at the time, so uh, funny, uh, uh, you know, and, and 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 it's it's funny to think back how primitive, uh, you know, the internet and the web and all those things were, and and what that's evolved to uh, uh, today uh, uh, over time. And you're right, a lot of the a lot of the folks that are are big players in, in e-commerce today weren't even born, uh, or were you know running around in diapers uh, anyway. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> this I'm from 85. Carlos, probably Carlos, uh, you know, was one of those. 85, 80, 85. It's too young, but yeah. All right. So you were out of your diapers anyway. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, Carlos, I know, especially considering what you do uh, with Evolve, that you are uh, especially interested in uh, uh, what Jason's doing uh, with uh, publicists and, uh, uh, you know, kind of what that role entails and, and uh, you know, how does uh, publicists help retailers and e-commerce providers, uh, uh, you know, reach their, you know, reach their intended audience, I guess. Yeah. That was to you, Jason, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, you tricked me with the, uh, the uh, Carlos up front part. It, it's yeah, a little sorry. tricky because, uh, Publicis is a, a holding company. So mm -hmm. uh, Publicis owns about 400 different agencies and all of those agencies are independent businesses with separate P&Ls that have their own sort of go-to-market strategies. Um, in, the, in the group, there's three big kinds of agencies. There's what we would call media agencies, which traditionally bought newspaper and television uh, space for, for brands. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are companies like Spark and Zenith and Starcom that, that buy all the, the media for Nike and Starbucks and many others. Um, we have a lot of storied creative agencies that do content and creative work on behalf of clients. So that's like Leo Burnett and Saatchi and Saatchi, a bunch of the companies you would have uh, prominently seen in Mad Men if you were a fan of that show. Um, the Sadly, I missed that golden era. Um, and, uh, you know, today those guys create the Super Bowl commercials for Walmart. Um, the, uh, one, one of our branding agencies invented the, the Amazon Smile logo, for example. Um, and then uh, there's a third pillar of agencies, which are sort of natively digital agencies that help a lot of brands and retailers with commerce. So that's like um, uh, Sapient or Digitas or Razorfish. Uh, and so uh, I grew up in the on that digital side, I guess would make the most, uh, not surprise anyone, um, started at Razorfish uh, and sort of matriculated through that channel. And if you're familiar with the Peter principle, you, you keep getting promoted to your level of incompetence. Um, the, uh, today I have sort of a, a group role. Um, so I, I help provide commerce uh, insight and expertise to all 400 agencies when they're working with with brands or retailers that are trying to solve what I call a, a, a commerce problem. So so there there's a significant content component to my job as as Carlos has identified. Um, you know, part of it is 
is putting some of our learnings out there and sharing them with the world in the hopes of uh, you know our brands being being well known as practitioners in the space. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, frankly, a lot of the brands are uh, kind of lucky, lucky. There there are a lot of you know famous incumbent brands that maybe don't have to work super hard for awareness at this point. Mm. Can I can I can I then ask a question because I want I I I I, I spoke to Scott because I thought it was really really interesting that you guys have this podcast and I've been creating content myself for the past uh, since I since I since I arrived in Denmark and I think content in itself is like a school like because you you learn how to be more conversational you learn so much about it right and and I find it interesting why publicists they would hire you you know like in uh, with all that uh conversational let's say and 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 breath of expertise in in commerce and why would they bring that if they are traditionally a uh a pr agency right or a conglomerate it's from france isn't it um i know a guy in brazil yeah yeah, um, yeah. and he he's suffering because uh, he's a, uh, a guy doing finance for publicists so I kind of like pick his brain on that. I'll, I'll be nicer to you. He could probably disapprove my expense reports. I had no idea. <laughs> well, well, we'll speak about it. I don't know. <laughs> But I was I was talking to Scott about this experience that you have as a content creator and as well someone uh, who's been in yeah. the trenches of retail and now publicist is bringing you in. You know, like and and what's uh, what's the uh, what's the deal here? And maybe talk a little bit yeah. about the future of agencies. What's going on and all the, the you know the the acquisitions, M and A's, and stuff like that. Sure, sure. sure. Uh, so, in fairness, I, I probably wasn't hired um, by Publis. Hey, I wasn't really hired as publicist. I was hired by an agency, um, and I probably wasn't hired specifically for content creation. Um, it. It is fair to say I have probably gotten my last four jobs because of Twitter. Um, right. So, like, you know, I, I, I mean, I like that sounds funny, but it, it, it's it's utterly true. I trust you. Um, yeah, that like, I you know, I, I have enjoyed um, being an early adopter of a lot of these social networks. I was one of, you know, an early user on on uh, uh, Twitter. Um, and most of my employers have like become aware of me through through my contributions there. So it's, it's, it's certainly helped my career quite a bit. Um, but uh, when Razorfish hired me, Razorfish uh, was a story digital agency. They, they invented a, a, a digital marketing practice you may have heard of called uh, SEO. Mm-hmm. Um, launched, you know, so, uh, uh, you know they, uh, they were born in like 1994 as a digital wow. agency, which um, was uh, uh, pretty impressive. Owned, for, owned by Microsoft for a while, uh, wrote the ad engine that Facebook uses today. Lots, lots of uh, impressive accomplishments there that I had nothing to do with. But um, when they hired me, they were interested in getting a lot more serious about building e-commerce sites. Um, and I, you know, uh, from the previous experience we discussed, had a lot of experience standing up e-commerce sites, which for a, a technical company. It's a lot of platform work. Back then it was, should you be on IBM WebSphere Commerce or should you be on Oracle ATG or SAP Hybris? Um, and what features should we implement? And should we use the personalization features built in IBM Precision Marketing or should we go to Carlos and buy his personalization solution to, to layer on top? All of those kind of questions. And so I, I frankly was hired at Razorfish because I had some credibility and expertise in 
solving that problem. Um, and and in that in that pillar, we got hired to help Target move off of uh, Amazon, for example, and launch Target.com. Uh, we you know built the ad network for BestBuy.com. Um, uh, I mean, and literally, we built hundreds of e-commerce sites for retailers and brands, and helped them operate them in many cases. So so really. I, I was hired as an operator and then because I enjoyed it, um, I have, I'm horrible at picking hobbies. My hobbies look a lot like my work. Um, I created, uh, you know, some content on the side and increasingly that that content benefited my day job. I, I certainly, as, as you alluded to, Carlos, you learn an awful lot about a topic by trying to create content to teach other people about that content. Um, and so it certainly made me smarter and a better communicator. Um, and, uh, you know, increasingly it's like, Hey, it's, uh, it's when, when, uh, you know, we go to a, a client pitch and the client, you know, knows me or listens to the podcast or something that, that of course, um, ben benefits my, my, my day gig. So like, you know, increasingly, it's been easier to lean into the content creation because it has such a tangible benefit to my my day gig. And honestly, today it's it's more public and private content creation than anything else. Like nobody comes to me anymore to help them stand up their their e-commerce platform. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we write a lot of point of views and and uh, you know board presentations for clients and things like that. Mm. So you're more like on the thought leadership space. Would would it be fair to uh, say that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would like. I mean, technically, if you want to get into my actual job description, like there's a a thought leadership component to be you know known mm. externally as a subject matter expert to help uh, our you know brands kind of establish their credibility in our space. Um, there's a uh, an internal education component. So you know, Publicis mm. has 140,000 employees. Uh, you know, we staff people on commerce projects and maybe their first project and they may need to get upskilled. So I, I do a lot of content for internal teams to teach them oh, about what's in, what's important. Um, and then like there is a, a component um, to, you know, directly engage and, and help clients. So, you know, my my biggest client today is Walmart. I, you know, I spend a lot of time every month. Um, you know, help helping uh, them navigate all the, you know, uh, strategic decisions that they have in front of them and, and many other retailers and brands as well. Yeah. And 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 the, the my next question would be about the, let's say, future of agencies, as you see, because, for example, um, I think Joe, you guys probably know him more than I do. He's from the U.S. Joe Rogan. He was acquired by uh, uh, Spotify for one hundred million dollars as a podcaster. Yeah. Um, I think the hustle recently by HubSpot and there are so many media companies being acquired, right? Uh, because they understand, uh, the audience, they understand how to control attention, which is something you do as well, uh, with your show. And, and so the question then I, I want to ask you is more on this, uh, educational front and how do you see agencies moving forward? Because still, I find it very, very curious that they, they decided to, to hire a guy like you because of your social media understanding, but also because of your voice, right? And and now your role is pretty much of a, an educator. And I think education is becoming even more important these days, right? Um, and uh, because people don't have the knowledge that you were, Scott, you have. So um, yeah, just just to see your views on this, like the future yeah, of agency. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, the, the future of agencies is interesting. Um, the, you know, uh, to be a successful agency, I think this has always been true, but it certainly feels true at the moment. Um, you really need to be constantly evolving because the, the clients you serve needs are constantly evolving, both what they need to do to win their customers, but also what they're good at internally and what they need external help for. Right. So mm -hmm. in general, clients hire agencies to to, you know, for scale or to do something that that requires a, a specialty skill that's difficult for that client to hire. Right. And in some cases, it, it's a skill that maybe it's too early or risky for that that client to invest in. So you'd rather rent that skill for a while until, you know, you need it. Right. So, mm -hmm. again, like eight years ago, lots of clients hired us for our expertise in turning the screws on e-commerce platform software. And it was super complex that, you know, it would mm -hmm. typically take 18 months to stand up um, one of these websites and it would be full of decisions and risk. Um, and you'd, you'd require a lot of specialty certifications in that platform, right? And if you're Dick Sporting Goods, it, you know, and you're, you're not even sure if e-commerce is going to be meaningful to your business, you, you may not have wanted 100 WebSphere Commerce software architects, right? Because there were only 500 in the world. Um, so you'd hire an agency that had 100 of them um, to help you make, make those decisions about your platform. But mm -hmm. two things happen over time. Things that are hard become easy, right? Yeah. And if you, Carlos, if you and I wanted to launch a website tomorrow, like we could, we could hop on a Shopify and we could be live tomorrow, right? Um, and with a yeah. pretty rich, full-featured website, and you know, the majority of entrepreneurs are going to do that. They're not going to mm -hmm. be hiring an agency to put an army of, of 500 people on an 18-month e-commerce implementation, right? Um, yeah. And so the need for that particular skill probably diminishes, and there's no controversy at Dix today how important e-commerce is. So of course, whatever platforms they are on, they mm -hmm. they they do they should want and do have a lot of that capability in house, right? So if you built an agency exclusively around renting WebSphere expertise to retailers, you uh, you would have had a great year where you would have really thrived, and then you would you would increasingly become irrelevant. And so the the trick for these digital agencies or any agencies is to keep anticipating where that puck is going to be. What help um, is Target going to need next year that it makes mm -hmm. that it makes more sense to rent than it does for Target to have internally? And and once you have that win you know, where's the puck going to be two years from now? So uh, again, most of the agencies in my world made a lot of money on advertising and the, mm -hmm. and the way advertising looks today is a lot different than the way it looked five years ago. And in fact, this year, there was more dollars flowing into digital advertising than traditional media. And much more of that is target and, you know, um, dynamically generated. Uh, so the, the skill sets required to do all that are are vastly different. And with all the worldwide privacy changes and the, the depreciation of cookies and IDFA, how digital advertising looks next year is going to be wildly different than how it looks today. And so the that both creates an opportunity for agencies, all that churn and uh, dynamicness. But it, 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 it does mean uh, it, it's not an industry where you can survive on complacency. If you want to build something and then leverage the heck out of it, agency is not a good model for you because whatever you built is going to be obsolete pretty quickly. Very nice. Very nice.
Super. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, really that whole as a service phenomenon is creeped into everything, including commerce, you know, and you don't, you don't, that's, you don't have to build it. You know, Neiman and Marcus built their own, but in 1998, when they launched their website, you had to build your own. Um, there wasn't a, there wasn't a, a consulting, you know, group of consulting experts necessary to bring in uh, uh, to do it. So uh, one of the uh, things you mentioned early in that exchange, Jason, was, uh, you know, how, you know, Twitter, uh, you know, have been responsible for your last, uh, you know, four jobs and, you know, that kind of social, you know, that that being present uh, on Twitter. I, I was just curious what you think about the whole clubhouse phenomenon, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, you, especially now that you've got a lot of these other big platforms, you know, replicating, copying, whatever you want to cop, you know, call it uh, the, that, that kind of capability. Yeah, um, well, uh, I guess like a general and a specific answer, like generally, I think it's it's super interesting and smart to always be toe dipping into the 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 latest platforms. And it's 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 really foolish to, you know, sit in our chair and predict what's going to be the winner and the loser, because, uh, you know, again, like there are a bunch of people that made money on MySpace that didn't, you know, think Facebook was very viable. Right. And um, yeah. The uh, in in uh, in my exact chair, I have a unique phenomenon that really helps me. There are three Jason Goldbergs that are famous in e-commerce. <laughs> um, so there's a there's a um, you know uh, one of the 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 biggest uh, cash rages ever for an e-commerce business was this company called Fab.com that was founded by a a much better looking Jason Goldberg than I am. Um, also, I think younger. Uh, and then. Uh, you know, one of the, the senior leaders at Gilt that went on to run e-commerce at Target and today is the CEO um, at, at um, oh, he just moved, I think, to, no, yeah, uh, he just left Blue Nile to go, shoot, it's going to, uh, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember, but um, uh, Jason Goldberger. Um, so uh, when, for example, when Jason Goldberger became the vice president of e-commerce at, at Target, I immediately got 5,000 LinkedIn invites from target employees, right? Because, uh, and, uh, so, so we joke, it's the best name in e-commerce, uh, cause we do, the three of us do know each other a little bit. Um, but, uh, so there's a land grab. Every time there's a new service, you want to be the first one there to get the Jason Goldberg, mo you know, uh, moniker. Um, and so that's, that's given me a little incentive to be a, you know, a, an early mover into some of these new platforms. Uh, and I think there, you know, you can learn a lot. You can't predict what's going to win or lose. Uh, but you, you know, there's something to learn from each of them. So in general, I, like I was an early adopter on uh, clubhouse. I'm getting all these invites now because I have a couple phone numbers and I'm, I'm telling them like, dude, I, I was on clubhouse last March when it was cool. Um, the, uh, so I do try to get on those early platforms. I would recommend that to anyone to sort of experiment. Um, and obviously, you know, awesome. It's often it's easier to carve out um, some awareness on a new platform to be a, you know, a big fish in a small pond than to try to, you know, trying to jump into YouTube this year and, and be noticed is difficult. Um, yeah. So, yeah I, you know, I guess that, yeah, the trains pulled out of the station with TikTok and, you know, a lot of these, these other, these other platforms as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, that being said, yeah. I'm not the hugest fan of 
uh, Clubhouse specifically. So uh, this this clip probably won't age well, but I, I'm not predicting that Clubhouse is going to be a huge hit. Um, mm -hmm. And th therefore, it means it probably will be astronomical and I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and I get it. Yeah, it's 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 just interesting to get your take, you know, because I have I, I struggle as well with the is this a flash in the pan, you know, or is this you know does this have staying power, right? You know, uh, uh, and grows into the next big thing. You know, I didn't I didn't necessarily think uh, you know that the Twitter concept was a very good idea when I was first introduced to it. To be be quite frank, you know, being you know you know going out and you know saying you know your thoughts and you know whatever the character limit was back then, uh, you know, little snippets, you know, seemed like, what, really? What's the, how can this be a viable thing? And, you know, look how wrong I was about that. But are you guys on TikTok? Just, just uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And how does that work for you? Well, uh, Scott? Well, for me, look, I, I am not producing content on TikTok. I'm not. I, it, but it, it is a tremendous time waster for me uh, mm -hmm. in terms of viewing content, I do have to say. Yeah. Yeah. TikTok's a painful reminder for me. Um, again, like for work, I try to experience all these platforms. And the fun thing, um, Carlos will appreciate this, it's way harder to experience the platforms that aren't in your indigenous markets, right? So, um, Super important platforms to me are like WeChat um, and Taobao Live. Um, and I, I used to have to like mail money, cash, currency to a coworker in China to, right. to you know, open a bank account on my behalf because you, you, you required a Chinese bank account, which, you know, American citizens couldn't technically have. Today, mm -hmm. it's a little easier to do those, those platforms. So I do sit on all those platforms. Um, eat. Each platform's unique, and to produce the best content for each platform, it, it should be bespoke. And I don't have the bandwidth to invest in content creation for all of them. So, I like I, I wouldn't consider myself a a, a, a TikTok content creator. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say there's a learning there that yeah. uh, people have short attention spans, and short form content wins over long form content. And it's a it's an ongoing joke. I recently started producing some YouTube content, and it's it's way too long. <laughs> yeah, but it's great. Uh, I mean, I, 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 we, we're going to talk about your YouTube content as well. Uh, but I think you got to have both on YouTube because you need to have the small bits, just like on LinkedIn. And I right, but the, the long form uh, format content as well. I think they both work anyhow. <laughs> yeah, I thought your the YouTube content I viewed, you know, getting ready for our talk today was pretty good. By the way, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't feel like it was too long, but. Uh, then again, oh, you gosh, know, you're, talking about, you're, you're talking about things I do for a living. So, you know, maybe I have a, 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 a more keen interest than, than a more casual yeah. viewer. You um, may have been in my eight person target audience. Maybe so. Maybe so. The, uh, uh, so maybe we'll shift the discussion to that, to your target uh, audience, uh, you know, which, you know, more around e-commerce and retail, uh, uh, if you'd like. And, uh, so, you know, one of the articles you've written, uh, you compared the impact of COVID to the Chicxulub uh, impactor, which for those who don't know what that is, the, the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs uh, uh, about 65 million years ago. Uh, so I thought it was a great analogy, right? You know, and, you know, it, especially, you know, when you think about the destruction and devastation, you know, that the initial impact caused, but, you know, 
the opportunities and the kind of the new things that, you know, kind of came out and thrived as a result. I, you know, I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a really good uh, uh, comparison. So when you think of it, so you go back to April 2020 and the world's going to end in terms of retail, right, uh, at that point. And then you go to May and it's like this 100%, if not, you know, uh, more than 100% rebound uh, uh, the other way. Uh, uh, but, you know, I, I think that uh, it's interesting your take on uh, how, you know, those numbers that you, you got to you got to dive deeper into those numbers to understand what they mean, because it's not necessarily uh, evenly distributed, if you will, about, uh, you know, who the winners and losers were. I'd love your, uh, your, your comment there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I agree. You, you have to be really careful about averages and aggregates. Uh, there's a a much smarter um, content creator than me, uh, Avinesh, who's a digital evangelist for, for Google. Um, and he, he produces a lot of content talking about the problems with averages and the need to sort of segment. But um, the my joke is on average, Nepal is flat, right? Like there's just as much elevation as there is um, uh, de-elevation, but there there is in fact a giant mountain in the middle. Um, in the same way, retail had a great year last year. United States retail was up 3.4%. We sold $5.6 trillion worth of stuff. Uh, that, that was exactly in the middle of everyone's estimates for the year. So, so, you know, if you look at it on average, COVID didn't happen. Retail had a very typical year. Um, but of course, nobody grew by 3.4%. There were, you know, pronounced winners and losers, right? And if, if you were a grocery store and you got gifted all that spending that used to go to restaurants, you had a great year. If you were a do-it-yourself store and you got gifted all the, the home improvement dollars that used to go to vacations and travel, you had a great year. If you were a sporting goods store and you, you got gifted all that revenue that used to go to gyms, you had a great year. If you were a gas station, pretty pretty cruddy year, right? Um, so the, you know, my sympathies to all the odometer uh, uh, people on odometer day, because the odometers did not get a good workout this year. Terrible uh, year for odometers, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, the magic question is, like, what's the impact of those disruptions, right? Does that, that great year in grocery create an a springboard that's an opportunity for grocery to permanently evolve and change. And it's never going to look like it did before COVID or is it a blip? And three years from now we look back and you know, it's, it's, it's pretty similar to how it was before COVID. Right. And so that's a, like, frankly, that what sticks versus what reverts conversation is a, a, a very common conversation uh, amongst my clients across a wide variety of, of behaviors that changed during the pandemic. Yeah, you know, I, so I made uh, my exit in 2018 from luxury retail and department store retail. And, you know, looking back over the last year, that was a really good uh, decision to go, you know, do something else. Uh, <laughs> because they were definitely one of the ones on the losing end, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the pandemic. Um, you know, and when all this got started, you know, uh, you had this uh, this push. It's pretty typical. I saw it in two thousand eight. I lived through it in two thousand eight. Uh, you know, to to you know clamp down on the spending. To you know go into the severe you know kind of austerity mode. Uh, uh, what we call it. You know, I was a I was in IT 
you know, infrastructure team, and we called it burning the furniture to keep the lights on is what we called it. But, it, you know, it was a, uh, an austerity program. Uh, and a lot of retailers did this, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as COVID hit. Um, so what do you think, who, who did it right? Who did it wrong? You know, who, 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 you know, cut off their nose to spite their face. So this, so this may be a way to put it, uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and maybe cut in the wrong places. Uh, uh, yeah. you know, especially that you think about, you know, we're vaccinated, I'm vaccinated. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the world's starting to feel a little better at least here in the U S right. And, and things seem to be loosening up and more upbeat. Right. You know, so, you know, and where, so where do we go from here as well? Yeah. Yeah. So tricky, right? If you think about it, three likely outcomes for any business in a disruption, uh, fail, survive, or thrive, right? Um, so, and there's, right, uh, we don't have perfect data on pandemics. There, there haven't been that many pandemics uh, in, uh, in history, thank goodness. And the, the ones that are most similar to this were so long ago that the that it's hard to draw direct analogies, right? Like the the Spanish flu, the world was very different for. Uh, SARS is the closest in China, but, you know, it was only regional. Um, but in general, recessions and depressions, we have a lot of great data on. And it turns out that if you don't want to go bankrupt during a recession, um, the number one thing you can do to avoid bankruptcy is be liquid and have as much cash on hand. So all of those austerity measures... Um, that suck to live through and are, you know, brutal to be part of, they demonstrably help keep you from going bankrupt during a recession. Um, and so while they do suck, there's some merit to them. And, and so if you're interested in landing in the survive instead of fail, uh, austerity is the play to go. Um, however, Companies also thrive in these disruptions, and almost every famous company that you and I know and admire, if you go back to their origin story, they were probably born during some kind of disruption, right? Um, the, uh, we tend to get a lot more interesting, um, viable companies that are born in recessions than we do in uh, you know, bull markets. Um, and if you look at the track record of companies that grew in a recession, um, the biggest thing they did is invested, right? Um, so uh, that sounds paradoxical. I've got to save money to avoid going bankrupt and I have to, in, I have to spend that money um, to position myself for an outsized return in the future, right? Um, and, the, and in some ways they are paradoxical, but so the trick is, save as much money as possible, and then intelligently deploy that capital on the few things that are going to give you the best return, right? So, I mean, the joke is like, when, when do you want to buy a beach house in the Hamptons, like in a recession, because there's, there's more houses available and they're a lot cheaper, right? Um, and so in, in this disruption is the time to get outsized return by investing in your future. So like what, what retailers invested in the future? Like, I mean, it sounds trite for us to say it. And I know we're in the industry, but it's, it's the omni-channel playbook, right? Like the, the winner in the pandemic, and I, I, I'm only going to give them a A- minus because I, I feel like uh, some of it was luck that they invested before the pandemic was Target, right? Like they bought, shipped. Um, they were best positioned to have a fulfillment from store e-commerce model and curbside pickup and last mile delivery. Um, 
and all those things killed for them. They delivered 95, they grew, they're, you know, a top 10 e-commerce site that grew 150% during the pandemic, 95% of all their orders were fulfilled from store. Um, you know, hard to do better than that. Uh, uh, companies like like Walmart, you know, Walmart ran a Super Bowl ad for curbside pickup two months before the pandemic, right? Like that was already a big strategic bet for for Walmart, and and um, they're wildly investing in it. Um, Best Buy, like Best Buy, uh, I worked for Best Buy for a long time. Like we had a meeting every month called the curbside pickup meeting. We probably had it for eight years, and we never did curbside pickup. They rolled out curbside pickup to like 500 stores in a weekend. Right. Like, which is amazing agility amazing. Um, and they're they're shrinking. You know, they're testing a store that's half the size of a traditional store because it has a fulfillment center in the back. Right. Like they're they're um, they, they foresee a future in which stores are still super important. But the role of the store is different and the way the inventory is deployed is different. So I look at some of those omnichannel retailers that made investments in doubling down on omnichannel. Um as as likely winners, I'll name two great retailers that I think are fabulous retailers that I think utterly blew it in the pandemic. Uh, time will tell. Uh, Costco and Trader Joe's. Um, two. Costco is one of the most successful retailers in history. Trader Joe's is an outsized performer in grocery. Um, they both don't like digital very much, right? Like they both. Um, like Costco famously, you know, sees no reason to spend any money on uh, dissuading people from going to the store. Trader Joe's feels like um, providing the best customer service and having a great human interaction is more valuable than a website. Um, I, I, I think all of those customer service elements that Costco and, and Trader Joe's lean into are really valuable and important, but not instead of digital. I think it's in addition to digital. And so I would argue they're under investment in digital um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be a, a long-term benefit to them. Uh, this is almost not fair to pick on, uh, but like you probably didn't want to be Burlington Coke factory that decided e-commerce wasn't a thing and turned it off in February, right before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and hold on, I popped into, uh, uh, my notes and then got into the wrong place here. Um, so I, you, you know, were I, watching a Tic Tac video. I know it. <laughs> no, I really I wasn't. I, I was trying to I was trying to jump ahead because there were some things you you uh, uh, spoke to in your answer that uh, I had further down my notes that I wanted to address. And the uh, uh, you know I was reading a, a, a very recent like from May 11th the Harvard Business Review article on uh, e-commerce and the, the post pandemic future. Uh, what's the name of the article? And uh, uh, one of the one of the things they stated is, you know, uh, it's it, it's when we think about what's going to stick, right? You know, that it, here we are on the other end of the pandemic, and and, and you know uh, what's going to stick. Uh, there, yeah, one of their claims I found interesting is it all comes down to how good you are on delivery uh, uh, side of things, and you know that's that that's those are the guys that are going to keep their customers. Uh, uh, you know, the folks that, you know, fi that figured out how to get it to you on time and continue to and, 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 and consumers aren't going to take COVID as an excuse to not get it fast any longer. Um, love to get your uh, position there. And, and, you know, I think related to that is, uh, and it was also mentioned in the article, is the store as a fulfillment center. Uh, you'd, you'd sort of alluded to that with the best buying uh, example uh, in your previous answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I do think... Um, 
delivery experience and speed of delivery are are super important and increasingly important dimensions of customer experience. Uh, a common mistake I see is people too narrowly defining customer experience, right? So to a lot of shopper marketers, customer experience equals shopping experience, right up until they get your credit card and that's the end of it, right? And these, these, these uh, things like fulfillment and post-service ownership experiences are super important parts of customer experience. Um, if I'm not a big fan of surveying consumers to ask their opinions because I, I think 97% of all these decisions are subconscious. And so, you know, you ask someone's rational mind, they can't explain it. Um, but if we look at the, the things that consumers put in the bucket of customer satisfaction 10 years ago versus the things they put in the bucket of customer satisfaction today, um, I'll bet speed of delivery is way more important um, today than it was 10 years ago. And we, you know, we probably have those bastards at Amazon to thank for that, right? Like they, you know, they certainly raised the bars for uh, for everyone. But uh, I had a funny debate in one of my LinkedIn groups. Uh, there's a bunch of retail in-store customer experience experts that are talking about how, oh, you know, this, this you know, speed of delivery is like a fad. And in the long run, being Neiman Marcus and taking great care of your customers is going to be more important than speed of delivery. Um, and well, I, I, I'm never going to argue against taking care of customers and having a good customer experience. Here's the reality. Um, do you know who the highest net promoter score retailer was in 2010? It was Nordstrom. Do you know who the highest net promoter score is today? It's Amazon, right? Like customers have like, does, you know, Nordstrom remembers your birthday and greet you when you come in the store and they have a guy playing the piano. Amazon won't let you talk to a human being. Right. Um, the the reality is like that customers have redefined customer service and customer satisfaction to be when I click this button, the product shows up five hours later. Right. Um, and and so that's the current definition of, of customer experience. And, and so it's super important to meet that. When one industry or one segment of the, the industry improves that experience, the expectation changes for everything, right? So when uh, you, you can get your, your books in, a, in two days from Amazon, you suddenly don't understand why it takes two weeks to get a shirt from Abercrombie & Fitch, right? Um, and so last year, Amazon went from two day to one day, and uh, that, that changed the expectation for everyone. Um, and then I guess the last part of your question, why the stores are so important. The stores are so important because Amazon has an insurmountable advantage of, for home delivery. Um, the uh, Warren Buffett famously said, Jeff Bezos probably isn't the guy you want to give a seven-year head start to. Um, and, you know, Amazon has 192 fulfillment centers in the United States of America. The second biggest e-commerce site in the U.S. is Walmart with 30. Almost everyone else has one or two. Um, so... If you want to catch Amazon for fulfillment capability, uh, you better bring uh, uh, three commas because you're going to have to spend over $100 billion to do it, right? Um, the um, uh, I don't know if we just lost Carlos there, but uh, we'll talk about him while he's gone. Yeah, um, absolutely. He's back. Uh, he's back. Darn it. We got to stop talking about him. Um, so <laughs> unlikely someone's going to catch up to Amazon for home home uh, fulfillment centers. And by the way, Amazon added like 90 last year. They added more capacity last year than Walmart has in the world. Um, so they're 
they're way ahead in home delivery. So if your plan is to open fulfillment centers in competition with Amazon, I, I would argue that's not a viable strategy. But um, if Amazon is driving those packages 100 miles out of a million square foot fulfillment center and Target is driving those packages five miles out of a 100,000 square foot store, Target can get that package to you cheaper and faster than Amazon can, even though Amazon has an insurmountable advantage in fulfillment centers. And so to me, like if there if there's a 800 pound gorilla, the, the strategy is not to become a thousand pound gorilla and wrestle them. The, the strategy is <laughs> to become a, an elephant or something else. Right. And so like that, that, you know, solving that last model by staging the inventory closer to the customer makes a lot of sense. And that's, you know, an awful lot of what retail stores are good at. Mm. Yeah, uh, to go the, back to the to go back to I the just, experience. Uh, real quick, and then you uh, just bookmark say in English <laughs> question, but it's because there are different models of right. Uh, so you have Amazon in in the U.S. looking a lot at at, at the logistics, um, and in Brazil. Have you heard of, I think you did, Mercado Livre? Mercado Livre? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. And they're pillars. Yes, it's logistics doing what the couriers have not been able to do. So they're, uh, you know, public system should be doing. But they also have, which it's not that uh, you're doing. And so the bank growth. So I, I, I was, um, I wanted to see your, and, and you're talking about ecosystems in, in some and, and how ecosystems are important in these growth strategies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Scott. Every, every geography is definitely different. And I apologize. Um, the, um, the what's going to work in, in a market with one set of infrastructure challenges and opportunities is, is definitely not going to work in another. Um, I, uh, the, uh, Asia and Latin America both have a different circumstance that creates different strengths and weaknesses, right? Like they don't have as strong of a national distribution center as we have in the U.S. So we have carriers like FedEx and UPS um, that promise to go to every address in those cities um, uh, in, in our countries. In, in China, there's not one delivery firm that does that. Or in India, there's not one delivery firm that does that. And in Brazil, there isn't one delivery firm. Um, and so you tend to have a, a network of delivery firms that do that, right? And so when you, uh, uh, someone opens an e-commerce site, you either have to federate a bunch of these delivery firms or you have to figure out your own delivery. So that's what Alibaba has essentially done. They, they um, like, they're, they're not relying on the Chinese equivalent of FedEx. Like, they're building the Chinese equivalent of, of FedEx and they're renting warehouse space from tons of brick and mortar retailers across the country uh, to do that in a, in a different way. Um, so I think the, the circumstances change. And also I would just say like cost of labor in Brazil and China is a lot lower than the U S. And so that actually makes the last mile a lot more appealing. Um, mm -hmm. if, if I'm a, a, a major, um, uh, retailer in Brazil, if I'm magazine Luisa, I can, um, uh, pay someone to drive the furniture to the customer's home and build the furniture in the customer's home and give them a, a very different experience than an American consumer expects where that, that IKEA table is going to get dropped off in the front porch. Um, so 
I do think you have to consider some of those regional differences when you're thinking about the opportunities. Thank you. So I'm going to I'm going to change the uh, topic uh, a little bit. And, you know, one of the things you talk a lot about, Jason, is, you know, uh, uh, you know, what the state of, you know, kind of uh, e-commerce sales and growth uh, are. And you, you do a lot you do a lot of content about, you know, uh, uh, you know, specifically about, you know, Amazon's results and Google's results and, you know, uh, so forth. All very interesting, by the way. I would appreciate uh, uh, you providing us that insight, those insights. Um, you know, what, people like to talk about how much e-commerce grew and, you know, what it is in terms of, you know, how big the sales were and compared to physical store sales. And I know you have very specific opinions about, you know, how that data can easily be misinterpreted. And I'm especially interested in your take on digitally influenced sales versus the actual, you know, uh, you know, I put it in the cart and bought it uh, a yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, well, so that, yeah, there's lots of room for ambiguity and variance in, in uh, how we measure and how we report, right? And people are super fixated on these, what percentage of retail sales is e-commerce? Um, and uh, and I, I generally hate that metric. I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to pay attention to that metric. Um, and just, just one example, Amazon had their earnings report two weeks ago, and it was amazing. Everything was was phenomenal. There was one negative thing that was kind of buried in their report. Um, our brick and mortar sales were down 17%. Now, That's no shock, um, right? It'd be a surprise even. Well, it, it, the reason it would be a surprise to some people is because Amazon's brick and mortar sales are almost exclusively grocery stores. And the one category of brick and mortar that all grew during the pandemic was grocery stores, right? Because there's $20 billion a month worth of uh, spending that used to go to restaurants that now goes to Kroger. <laughs> um, so you go, wait a minute, how did Whole Foods lose 17% of their sales during the pandemic? That's impossible. Um, and the reason it's impossible is because in Amazon's ecosystem, when you order home delivery from WholeFoods.com, that's an Amazon sale, not a Whole Foods sale. <laughs> okay. So their, their stupid accounting is different. It's than an attribution problem. Yeah, it's a silly attribution problem. So I don't care very much about that attribution. Um, it's it's a little bit like in Best Buy saying, um, you know what? Sales uh, from cash registers that are operated by left-handed people are 70% higher than cash registers operated by right-handed people, uh, right? Like that that's <laughs> probably true, could be true. Uh, correlation does not equal causation. I don't care. Right. Um, and so where you decide to get your food delivered, like, does, don't care. What I care about is how much food you needed and, and um, uh, who you chose to get it from. And so uh, to me, the, the better metric that you alluded to um, is to look at overall sales. And then say, if you're in in the digital ecosystem, say what percentage of that overall sales were digitally influenced? So. I don't care where where you paid or 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 uh, where you placed the order. I care about like, did you use Google Maps to find a store near you that had it in stock? Did you use my store locator to see what my hours were? Did you read the reviews of my store on Yelp? Did you read the reviews of the product on Amazon? Like these are all digital experiences that I have to get right in order to win. And so the um, the the thing I'm interested in is what percentage of that overall sales are digitally influenced. Um, a bunch of uh, brands and retailers are adopting 
some flavor of that metric. And Forrester says, like pre-pandemic, it was 49% of all retail sales were digitally influenced. By my math, as a result of the pandemic, it's about 61% of digitally influenced sales. So I spent a lot of time talking to digital marketers and I always open with the fact that they're they're wildly underpaid and we need to get them a raise because they're the front door of all these shopping experiences. Uh, yeah, NemaMarcus.com is way more important than that Dallas flagship. Yeah, which, you know, it's funny you should mention that. You know, my last uh, my last year at Nima Marcus, what I was focused on was uh, the technology for the Hudson Yards uh, Gateway store, oh, as, well, as was much of the company. You know, there was that was a huge effort, you know, uh, uh, with, uh, you know, millions upon millions of dollars being spent to, to, to get that store right. And we were pretty happy with the results, you know, when it opened. And less than two years later, it's no longer even there, right? It's been, you know, it's closed and it's a Facebook office now or something, uh, something completely ridiculous. The, uh, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I think one of the things you say is, you know, uh, or have said is that, you know, mobile's your new front door, mobile and digital. Uh, are your new front door uh, and completely agree with that. And, you know, it goes back to uh, something else I read when, you know, reading through your stuff, you know, and that was that uh, 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 e-commerce solves buying, but it breaks shopping, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that treating your e-commerce site like a glorified digital catalog uh, and not trying to replicate you know, all the things that, you know, many retailers learned and were good at, you know, with their physical spaces, uh, you know, is a missed opportunity. Uh, uh, especially think about, you know, uh, uh, grocery stores, for instance, right? This this curbside pickup, right? And so if I'm doing curbside pickup, then I'm not doing all that impulse buying, right? In, you know, during my my journey. Yeah, huge store. problem. So, so why, are they, why are they not replicating those opportunities as I shop, you know, the, the, the site for my curbside, right? You know, there's a, there's an innovation opportunity there, I would think. You know, it's, it's not that you can't do it. You just have to do it different. Um, who's yeah, doing 100%. it different? Who's doing it yeah. different? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. tricky. Yeah. I, I do feel like that's a, it's, a, it's a hard instinct to get over, right? Like anytime there's something new, our first instinct is to do a new version of the old thing. Um, right. And so you imagine you were a newspaper advertiser forever and you bought your first TV ad. Your first instinct is going to be to aim the, the TV camera at your newspaper ad. Right. Which is not going to work very well. Right. Because it's it's a different medium. Um, when we were building e-commerce sites at, at uh, uh, Blockbuster in 1994, there was no model. There was nobody that said this is what UX should look like. And so do you know what all the prototypes were? They were pictures of the store and you click the shelf in the store that you wanted to go to, right? Like, think about that. There's 10 different ways to search for movies. Physically in the store, we can only put the movie on one shelf, right? So we can't both assort it by actor and by genre. But mm -hmm. digitally, of course we can, right? So, so why are we constraining ourselves to this physical limitation in this digital thing? Because that's the first version. Uh, when when uh, Sir Sir Ives and team at Apple invented the first Apple user interface, they made it look physical, right? Like they they simulated paper on the screen and and paper clips and things to make it feel like a digital version of the analog thing. Over time, like we learn how to do it better. Um, and so in the same way, uh, when when we first have to do curbside pickup, we we you know we we most get locked into the paradigm of the store. And, and per your point, 
like you're still going to pick the products in the store, right? Because that's how we did it in a physical store. In the digital world, we may buy the products at walmart.com, but we may discover the products not in the soap aisle, but on TikTok, right? And so that discovery experience that we're we're miscreating on on walmart.com maybe needs to live on on a a, a, a influencer's TikTok account. So we shall see. Well, Jason, I could easily fill another hour up with you because you know just just talking about you know this kind of social as a as a commerce platform could you know would be a, an awesome discussion. We'd love to have you back sometime down the road. Uh, uh, you know, I've got six more pages of notes uh, that we're nowhere near, but uh, you know, I see we we've, we've spent about an hour with you, and so we probably ought to wrap this up uh, at this point. So I want to thank you personally, um, and it looks like Carlos is in a live video again. So congratulations, Carlos, for you know your head moving for the first time in fifteen minutes. Uh, Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, your video your video was weird. Uh, I think it was resolution but anyhow that's not important thank you very much it's been I mean a master class you two guys talk uh, I always I always say that he's 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 I'm, I'm more like Rob just uh, <laughs> there but I, I want to thank you very much for this and uh, yeah we could do like a follow-up you know down the road it would be great but thanks for this oh I love it yeah it was amazing Thank you, Thank very you much. so much, Jason. Uh, great to catch up with both of you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and uh, uh, be well, everyone.